Hey everyone, and thank you so much for tuning into Virtual Sentiments today. We're really glad to have you. And we're really excited too to add Virtual Sentiments to our family of podcasts from the Hayek program. Just before we get started, if you like what you hear today and you want to hear more of it and you think other people should hear more of it, please do consider sharing the podcast. We have got a lot of ground that we're going to cover on this season of Virtual Sentiments. We're going to cover topics on the ethics of artificial intelligence. We've got conversations on self-driving cars, the evolution of communication, and we're even going to get into literature uh, later on in the season. So there really is something for everybody, and we'd like to make those conversations as available as possible to everyone who wants to hear them. Also, we release every two weeks for this season of Virtual Sentiments, so if you just can't wait for that next episode to come out, I'd encourage you to check out our other podcast from the Hayek Program, which is simply called the Hayek Program Podcast. There's a wealth of information over there on topics such as economics and sociology and politics, and it's a perfect resource for you and other lifelong learners to engage with. And finally, if you listen to a couple episodes of Virtual Sentiments and you're really liking the show, we will always appreciate a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for now. Let's get to the episode. Welcome to Virtual Sentiments a podcast from the Hayek program that grapples with the most pressing problems in political economy with an eye towards the past and shows us where we've been to see where we can go. Now, here's your host, Kristen Collins. Today we have Dr. Weifeng Zhang, who is a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. His work focuses on bridging the field of natural language processing and machine learning to economic policy studies. Now, Weifeng, as you know, our theme for this first season of Virtual Sentiments is digital democracy. But I think that properly grappling with the conditions of digital life in democracies requires a more comparative and international perspective. So I'm really looking forward to learning more from you about not only U.S.-China relations, but Chinese political economy and digital technology as a research tool for studying government. I know that as a part of your work, you maintain the Policy Change Index Project. Could you explain this project, both in terms of the tech that it uses and the policy issues that it enables you to study? Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Kristen. I look forward to the conversation. The uh, Policy Change Index is a project I started several years ago, Uh, but the idea uh, underlying the project was something that um, related to something that happened to me when I first left uh, mainland China. And uh, I told this story uh, to some uh, other people as well. uh, When I left mainland China, it was in 2006, uh, and I went to Hong Kong for master's degree. And uh, I thought growing up in China, I was I always thought of myself as you know one of those more open-minded people, you know, smart and <laughs> hardworking. <laughs> and but what really struck me was that when I came to the university, it's the University of Hong Kong. Uh, one of the very first things I saw was a gigantic sta- uh, sculpture of a lot of bloody uh, red red bloody uh, dead body piling up, and it was uh, aesthetically not pleasing. So. <laughs> I stepped closer to it and it says underneath in memory of uh, Tiananmen Square massacre. And that was really the moment I realized 
uh, actually people died in Tiananmen Square back in uh, 1989. So I learned about the fact like 17 years later. And uh, all I, I remember growing up in China was that something happened. I, I remember seeing something happen uh, on television in Tiananmen Square. It seems I was taught that nobody really died. Uh, the government took care of it, some minor disturbances in something so symbolic to the country and everything was fine. So it was really shocking that I only learned about the truth uh, much later on. And what it says to me was the power of propaganda or how effective it is in manipulating people's mind and hence manipulating people's action if you have the power to control them, right? And so that's, uh, that gave me the idea that because it's so effective, the Chinese government must be using it uh, very carefully in terms of implementing its policies. And uh, otherwise, the Chinese government would not be spending a lot of money every year on the propaganda department. They actually shamelessly call it propaganda department. And later on, they change it up to publicity department. Uh, because they realized that word doesn't have a very good connotation. Uh, but they, 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 they apparently did not know that uh, before. So they actually set, uh, says uh, propaganda department within the Communist Party. Growing up in China, the, one of the most uh, the clearest memories I have in terms of uh, information or the, uh, the amount of information I can, I can uh, get in the environment was that I used to love a magazine uh, published by um, uh, published in Guangdong, the province I grew up in. And uh, in Chinese, there's a saying that when you're so far away from the emperor, you're freer, right? Because <laughs> uh, it's so far away. And Guangdong is kind of the place that uh, is kind of far away from Beijing. So it's, it used to be relatively free. And I love reading that magazine. Uh, it used to be very critical of, of the Chinese government. But what, really, what was really upsetting me was that later on became much less so, so in the year 2000s. And so that's related to later on what my, uh, the uh, findings from the PCI project confirms was that the tightening of speech environment in China or social the increase in social control more generally did not start with the current Chinese president Xi Jinping. It started with in early 2000s with the former Chinese president Hu Jintao. And uh, more spe specifically, he, he came into office in early 2000s after years of economic reforms in China that some consider had gone too far. Uh, there, there, were a lot of, there was a lot of income inequality, regional disparities, and all sorts of social problems. But the Chinese government reacted to that with a very wrong approach to say, there are a lot of problems. We are the government and we are here to help. And the Chinese version of that and so what they ended up doing is that they think of government's visible hand as a way to solve the problems from an imperfect market. And that also led to information control and the crackdown of a lot of these kind of slightly open-minded magazines and newspapers in China that you could see. And you just no longer uh, were, uh, were able to see that after he, he came into office. And the uh, state-owned enterprises, for example, was on the on the path of being um, uh, privatized a mass, uh, but it was also pulled back by him after he came in the early 2000s. And so uh, up to the point I left China, mainland China, it was uh, already the end. I think the, the period of having increasingly openness 
uh, was or has already come to an end. And after I left mainland China, I, I, I lived in Hong Kong for a few years from 2006 to 2009. It was also the beginning of the tightening in Hong Kong as well. And uh, we don't need to mention what's happening in Hong Kong now, mm. which is way worse than what I saw uh, in, late 2000, in late 2010s in Hong Kong. So things have been um, increasingly escalating in terms of the narrowing of freedom, the limited freedom we had in China and also in Hong Kong. And it's really sad to see what's, you know, uh, continue to happen now. And so all this uh, gave me the idea that because it's so important, if we study, study propaganda more carefully, um, we must be able to extract a lot of valuable information uh, about the, the Chinese government's intention uh, or in terms of what it might do next, for example. And that turns out to be actually part of the uh, literature that's now increasingly popular uh, called uh, the practice and literature called open source intelligence, uh, basically using this kind of open domain information. And it, you end up with a lot of valuable information that sometimes even outcompete uh, intelligence agencies uh, information by say, I don't know, wiretapping phone calls, for example. So that's what gave me the idea uh, for the policy change index. So what we ended up doing is we collected just about every single word ever published by the Chinese newspaper called People's Daily, uh, China's version of Pravda, uh, going all the way to 1945. So we collected like about 2 million articles over time. And uh, what we ended up doing is to monitor whether it changed in significant way what it says about current events. And that oftentimes have a pretty good predictive power in terms of how when the Chinese government decided to change the direction for the country it oftentimes showed up beforehand, way beforehand sometimes, uh, in the newspaper first, before the actual action was taken. Wow, so in terms of this project, how does machine learning help you read and, and sift through all this open information? That's a very uh, good question because that was actually the largest hurdle when we were developing the program because as uh, you and perhaps many of our, of our listeners know, that a, a major challenge for machine learning was we need good data to train a model, right? And good data mean if you are interested in the algorithm that looks at the picture and say, this is the dog versus this is a muffin, blueberry <laughs> muffin, right? So you, you need very good uh, imagery uh, to tell the difference so that the machine can learn from it. But preparing such a data set for developing an algorithm is oftentimes very, very time consuming. So if say, I want to know whether uh, President Xi Jinping is changing his mind, right? Sitting in his office in Beijing, how, where, where do you even get the training data for that? And, and but the uh, uh, one trick we came up with with the data set was very, actually very convenient is that when the machine looks at an article published by the People's Daily, let's ask this question, do we know uh, which page the article appears on or what date the article was published on. So for this kind of seemingly useless, one might say, or seemingly trivial questions, um, you may think that it's, why does it matter? But so first of all, we have a lot of data for that, right? We actually know which page and each article appears on and the date of the publication. Um, so we can easily train a model to, to predict that. But the use of it is also striking 
because whether something appears on the front page, say, uh, versus not on the front page of the newspaper matters a lot. Or the timing, if you look at articles, uh, like what the Chinese government says about Tiananmen Square students protesting back, back in 1989, when it's uh, closer to the crackdown, uh, the things they said about the students were more negative, right? So they, when they first came out, they loved their country, right? But toward the end, they're like morons. So we, we, we need to crack down on them. We need to, you know, uh, uh, clear up the mess. And so the timing of publication also says a lot too. So it, it, in the end, it uh, comes down to how we can uh, strategically use the data we have to overcome the, 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 the obstacle of not having very good training data. I, I was interested to push a little bit more into the details of this and understand, are there important limits to the policy change index or to machine learning uh, in these applications? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And it really comes down to how we, going back to the last question, how we understand the context and the limitations of the context. So the people's study is the mouthpiece of the Communist Party, right? And uh, the, the first product, we had the policy change index for China, where we uh, tried to detect whether the Chinese government changed the uh, front page content significantly from the past. And the reason being that if they change that, then something uh, in terms of action or policy would come up. So if you look at what they used to say on the front page during say cultural revolution, central planning, right, all these command economy, uh, then you know, market uh, in that period will be deemed uh, you know, evil. Uh, but before China opened up to the rest of the world, the government actually decided to change people's minds first to say market can be compatible with socialism. So they actually changed that in the uh, key party documents before they actually launched market mechanism. So the, the algorithm is successful in detecting this kind of deliberate, well thought through policy changes. Because if you were to do that, then you would also plan your words as well. But for things that happen more suddenly and such that the government policy is more reactive to the reality. Uh, the, the, uh, and a very useful example to think about is the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. If you look at the PCI index, it, it did uh, spike up because the content on the front page did change. It was all of a sudden about rescuing the economy, right? Uh, uh, rescue packages passed by the uh, Chinese government in terms of uh, fiscal policy. Uh, but that's a reaction to the problem. So you don't see any lead time for that for obvious reasons. And um, the crackdown on the students in Tiananmen Square uh, did not make it to the front page either. Oftentimes did not make it to the front page either. Uh, the day of the crackdown, it was a very short article, less than 100 words. Somewhere says that we took care of the problem. So if you look at what's on and off the front page, you're not gonna see changes in, ter in terms of this kind of very bad policies like shooting students in the Tiananmen Square. So there are obvious limitation on that. Uh, uh, it only works for something that the Chinese government is willingly talking about uh, deliberately in preparation for actions. That's a really important qualification. And I'm sure it's something that you take into account when you are using the tool. It sounds to me, I mean, would it be accurate to characterize the PCI as a tool for watching the watchers, um, kind of empowering people to uh, 
more carefully scrutinize the actions of the Chinese government? Absolutely. And I think that's that speaks to what I see as the weakness in terms of U.S. policy toward China more broadly was that we, we have a long time overlooked the value of information in the public domain. And I spoke about that in the context of the U.S. intelligence agency, which for many years has uh, focused on secrecy rather than uh, what's considered in the open domain because that's cheap information, right? So cheap information, uh, they should not be valuable. Uh, but the Chinese government does not see it that way. Uh, open source intelligence was the first resort, not a last resort in China. So the Chinese government has been known for working with private sector technology companies in the fr- private sector to collect a lot of information on the internet, including spying on Americans uh, st- uh, through cyber theft to uh, steal a lot of uh, what's not in the uh, open domain either, the information not in the open domain either. And what they ended up doing is that with that trove of information, they, they were able to do another analysis to understand the American society. Right? So that's kind of practice is what the Chinese has been doing, have been doing, but what the U.S. is not. Mm. And so part of what I try to do is that to raise the awareness that uh, even something as, uh, as um, 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 if you think about propaganda, a lot of Americans, they would naturally associate that word with misinformation or disinformation, right? So, or you can simply call it fake news. But the, the point of the PCI project is to raise the awareness that there's a lot of valuable stuff in fake news if you figure out a way to analyze it. And because China's big brother has been analyzing us so intently for so, for so long, it's time for us to analyze them. It's time for us to watch the big brother. That's a good way to put it. Um, and I, I think what is fascinating to me about the project and what you were saying about propaganda and how it's often kind of associated with misinformation or disinformation, but it sounds like what you're doing is you are taking propaganda, which can be kind of occlusive, can be somewhat, um, it, it can try to conceal in, in some ways and making it a tool to be able to uh, kind of gain knowledge and make the actions of the state more transparent. And I dare say that this kind of sounds like there's this democratic potential to the technology in the way that you're using it. And at the same time, I feel hesitant. Um, and, and that kind of kept connects to this idea of is there something democratic about about tech and about the development of technology and i feel like we kind of need to be wary when we start thinking about that because we have examples in the past of maybe excessively optimistic views of the political consequences of tech um so as you may remember there's a sound bite uh from 2000 where bill clinton claimed that chinese efforts to control the internet would be like nailing jello to the wall how well do you think that claim has aged? And how has the PCI and your other research shaped your view on that? So I guess it has aged just as well as its claim that by welcoming China into WTO, it will become an open society, right? So we have <laughs> all seen how that played out. Uh, but I, so I pointed that out not to say that we should blame policymakers who make that kind of decisions back in the early 2000s because a lot of people back then 
that was for a lot of people back then, that was the, uh, the best decision based on the information available to them at the time. I said that because when I graduated from the university in mainland China in 2006, I won that uh, little prize from the university, a university medal, where um, the, the people who, uh, the person who was handing me that prize was the chief negotiator for China's succession to the WTO, Mr. Long Yongtu. Um, I, remember, I remember that very uh, clearly because um, what struck me back then was that he was not popular in China. He was blamed. He was uh, considered by many people uh, as a traitor because he made too much concession for China's succession to the World, uh, World Trade Organization. Uh, but the Chinese government pro uh, pretty much st stood behind him uh, for the accession. And the, the justification they made was that we wanted to join the uh, global economy because we wanted to be more open. We wanted to have more reforms and eventually move to a more open society. So even people in China thought the way former President Clinton did about uh, the potential liber liberating aspect of trade and technology and including the internet. Uh, it did not end in that, uh, end, uh, it did not end very well, precisely because I think people have overlooked uh, the fact that bad actors would also have more uh, information, right? <laughs> if you think about the Chinese government, it, it knows everything about all the Chinese people inside. Is, and and uh, the, the pandemic is a good example where wherever you travel out, out, outside of your house or own home, the government probably knows it, right? You take a train, you need to show your ID. Take a bus, you also need to show your ID and the vaccine proof or whatever. And so the surveillance state has, has progressed much faster than people like us, people, uh, people's use of the technology to, to watch them back. So uh, I agree that technology in principle could be liberating, uh, but I think in terms of our effort, I think we are more like playing catch up now catch up with a big brother than really liberating them. In the realm of political theory, political philosophy, there'll be debates about things like human rights and how much you can expect and push for protections of human rights in a place like China, because often there will be a claim of there's just there's major cultural difference. Um, Sometimes there'll be, uh, and I, I think my understanding is that the Chinese government sometimes makes reference to the Confucian heritage um, as well. And do you have any thoughts on how people negotiate the desire to respect kind of multi multicultural difference and sincere cultural differences while also dealing with the fact that are these ideas and histories being kind of manipulated or, or used in certain ways to justify um, the interests of people in power? Did you mean in the context of China or in the context of how Americans uh, see China? Well, I, I guess either. Yeah. Th that's very, so the, I think the Chinese, the Chinese version of the question is very interesting in the sense that within China, there's not really a lot of cultural diversities um, for a simple reason that the majority of the Chinese people are the, 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 the Han of the Han race, uh, the, 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 the main ethnicity. And so, uh, and people have all sorts of stereotypes about the minor, um, you know, minorities in China. People 
growing up, I remember people often associated Uyghurs who live in other provinces like Guangdong. And uh, they just thought of them as, first of all, people who uh, most likely are selling barbecues on the street. And second of all, they are often uh, pickpockets. Uh, um, or how do, you, how do you say it? Pickpocketers. Uh, and so there are all sorts of very negative stereotypes of uh, minorities as well. And people often are quite tolerant uh, of control in exchange for uh, prosperity. And that has been the main theme uh, after the uh, beginning of the economic reforms in the late 70s. And if you talk to regular folks in China, they would say uh, they, they are aware that they are not as free as say Americans in, in the US, right? But they, are, they, would, they would tell you that they're, they're most of, many of them are fine with it because that's how we are now so much richer than our grand, grandparents or our parents in under Mao, for example. And so I think that the, over, over time, it has led to a, unfortunately, higher tolerance of control and power. And I think that's, uh, um, if you think about in terms of a, uh, the trade-off between understanding different culture versus the um, obedience to authority, I think that's a, uh, the scale is going in one direction too far uh, than the other. And... I guess you have an American version of the question, right? So if you think about how Americans see China, and on the one hand, you have uh, the awareness that you know they're coming from a different culture, they might be thinking things in a very different way, which I, 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 I think is correct. But the other is that to what extent do you think that is a Chinese inference, right? Confucius value. I don't think the Chinese people really have Confucius value to begin with, right? but um, Americans, they tend to think that because that's, that's what the Chinese propaganda tells us. Mm -hmm. The Chinese propaganda tells us that uh, they have Confucius value. They have Asia, or what's called uh, famously called by Lee Kuan Yew, uh, the Asian value, right? So democracy doesn't work for those Asian people. No, it did. It, it worked in South Korea. It worked in Taiwan. It's perfectly fine. You, Asian and Japan, Asian people can have democracy too, but it's their talking point and they, they sort of blend into the cultural element, and that's more deceiving to the American eye, I think. I know that, and, and, and what actually these discussions actually do bring to mind, the kind of domestic political problems that we have in the U.S. too. I think sometimes people, political scientists, people interested in politics and political economy can be a little bit complacent about the divisions between an auto, more autocratic country versus what goes on in a more democratic country. But I think even a more democratic country can have serious issues with state-sponsored uh, violence and forms of oppression. So I know that some of your interest is in AI and fairness in artificial intelligence. And I, this is different from the predictive analysis in the PCI, but there are a lot of critical analysis happening of predictive policing systems within the U.S. And I wanted to get kind of your perspective more broadly. It doesn't necessarily have to be specifically on those technologies, but how should we understand the issues of fairness and bias in AI, particularly as it becomes applied to various domains and issues? That's a, uh, like we talked about how machine learning worked early in the conversation was it all comes down to training data. And what you said, all these uh, problems with biases or discrimination with AIs is precisely because of that. 
if you want to train a model, you need to collect data and data are in the past. And in the past, we have a lot of discriminations, right? And loan officers in banks, you know, they maybe they subconsciously think about the decisions to make the decision with in mind some um, considerations that we think should not be had by looking at, you know, the color of the people's skin uh, before they make a decision on whether they issue the loan. And, and that kind of biases are policing as well. They exist and they're everywhere. And so if you build an algorithm to learn from historical data, you necessarily, ine inevitable oftentimes, will pick up those biases. And so in that sense, I don't agree with the people who make, some people who make the argument that AIs are inherently uh, biased or discriminating, which I think is not true. It's just a tool, right? It's just, it's no different at a conceptual level than statistics, uh, how to run a linear regression. It all comes down to what data you put into it. And it's, uh, we, we do recognize, of course, that in the past we have, you know, some negative aspect of our past in history. And if you train the model with that, you would pick up uh, on that. And it's a problem that's hard to solve because it's not trivial to say you can, it's not trivial to, uh, it's not as trivial as setting a set of rules to tell the AI, learn certain things and don't learn certain, certain other things. And it does not always help you solve the problem. If you think about gender biases, right? So you might want to say, tell the machine to not use the variable that indicates people's gender in the uh, uh, predictive policing uh, data set, for example. But then can they use the length of their hair as indicator? That's not gender. But we, of course, we know that women tend to have longer hairs than men. Right? You have, Kristen, you have longer hair than I do. <laughs> and so if you tell the machine that you can use that, well, then they become effective pro proxies. And I think things that can become effective proxies are much wider than what we thought might be effective proxies. Um, can we use consumption records on Amazon to train a model? Well, Kristen, you might be buying lipsticks on Amazon. I certainly don't buy those. And that might be input uh, to the, the input of the data. So it's um, some have this view that if we are smart enough, we can regulate AIs and then they won't make that kind of mistakes. That's just the same, in my eye, the same fatal conceit that we would think government can have, right? To say government is able to decide everything. I don't think we can, in terms of regulation, uh, decide everything in terms of the ideal outcome that we want to get out of AI. So it's, it's a very tricky problem. Uh, I think it, easily, it can easily lead to overregulation or unnecessary regulation or rulemaking that would prevent the pro progress of the technology without solving the problem that really concerns us. Uh, is there any possibility that transparency would be an important value to bring into thinking about these types of questions with machine learning. Uh, just the idea of being able to have more auditing of algorithms to be able to get a better sense of when there are these proxies that maybe we couldn't predict, but are actually shaping these processes. I think it's good uh, policy to have to ask companies that use AI to be more transparent about it. It's, uh, it's easier said than done for two reasons. One is that sometimes uh, the technologies might be related to their uh, proprietary technologies that it would, not fair, it would be not fair to ask them to be uh, to disclose. 
the policy change index you mentioned is fully transparent. And that's because we are nonprofit and I want to do, I wanted to do things as transparent as possible. So anyone who has the same data from the Chinese newspaper, applying the code that I put on GitHub would be able to obtain exactly the same result as I put out there on the website. And so uh, I'm, uh, I, I meant that for being an example of how transparent we can be in a nonprofit uh, setting, right? But if you, I, I don't think if you, if you ask Google to open up everything, the answer would be a straight no, right? I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> and that has a lot, of, a lot to do with business secrets. And another dimension that's also make that hard to do is that if you, so one of the latest AI development, very impressive, was called uh, by OpenAI, the organization called OpenAI. They had a natural language generator algorithm called GPT-3. And it's very powerful. It can spit out a lot of uh, uh, fake news articles that look very much like real news, except it's fake. So, you know, Adam Smith was called uh, shoplifting in TJ Maxx. It's <laughs> totally not true, but it could come up and it could come up in a very natural sounding, news sounding uh, article that they uh, spit out from the algorithm. And if you say, I want to um, examine the algorithm to see whether it's biased or maybe to improve on it, it turns out that it's so, the model is so large that no one can actually download the model and retrain it in local machines. Only large institutions like OpenAI or Facebook and Google can do that. Is it a monopoly? Factually, yes, because nobody has the financial resources to put together as many machines as those uh, companies do. Uh, but so even if you ask them to uh, let you download and open everything up, you oftentimes would not be able to track them uh, effectively. So it, it's, it's a really tough problem. Uh, I, I certainly appreciate the principle of having more transparency. I'm a little skeptical of how far that would go though. Yeah, you know, I really did appreciate all the different perspectives that you shared with us. I was wondering if you might be willing to share more of your thoughts of thinking forward through the relationship between the U.S. and China and how should people in the U.S. be thinking about maintaining a peaceful relationship with China as there are new geopolitical consequences uh, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, for example, um, as the pandemic continues? That's a, I would say, trillion, multi-trillion dollar question <laughs> and a lot to unpack there. But the, that's actually what the program um, I co-direct at Mercatus, the International Freedom Project, uh, it's all about is, is that I think after 20 years with China being, in, uh, being part of the uh, global economy uh, as member of the WTO, uh, we have recognized that the uh, call, the national security cost of the romantic engagement with China is now uh, coming back to haunt us. It's backfiring. But um, we have also seen after four years of uh, President Trump's uh, China policy that if you try to just resort to protectionism, it's not going to solve the problem. If you think about the trade war, it's not changing any Chinese behavior as far as I, I can tell. Um, and uh, it's, it's been hurting American consumers and American businesses every single day, right? And, and so the, I think the, the trying to challenge is, is that we need to find a right balance between the economic benefit of engaging with China, which we have seen for decades now, versus the uh, national security cost. 
that some of that engagement might bring in terms of Confucius Institute, or um, we can even talk about Chinese influence in media, right? If you look at major US newspapers, they often just shamelessly republish Chinese content without being transparent about it, right? So it, again, gets back to the transparency issue. So there are a lot of uh, compromises now, compromises now that we have seen in our liberal society uh, that we did not uh, anticipate when in the early 2000s when China joined the WTO. And so the balance now is to find, the, is to balance the economic benefit versus the national security cost. And you know, I wish, you know, the US government had a uh, uh, agency like the Congressional Budget Office, because if you think about the CBO, whenever lawmakers, they propose a tax bill, right? How to change the tax law, the CBO would come up and tell you, this is how much it's going to hurt our deficit and national debt and all that economic uh, uh, outcomes, economic consequence of a uh, tax reform. And, but whenever we think about policies, foreign policies in particular, regarding other countries, and that might serve some foreign policy purposes, there's not really a good accounting for that. Like how, if you think about trade war with China, how much is going to change Chinese behavior Policymakers was never transparent about it. Uh, they would say that China would would back down in the, in the trade negotiations. They would try. They would start protecting their intellectual property right and change the unfair trade practices. It's their view. Nobody's checking that view. There's no not an equivalent of CBO to tell us that this is how much security we are going to gain in exchange for paying 20% uh, more on groceries or 20% more on, uh, on your clothing and or toys. And we never, we, we have never seen that, that kind of calculation. And I think that's where uh, the, the country eventually need to get that because it's impractical to, to say that we just cut, cut off the ties with China. It might be easier to cut off the ties with Russia, but certainly not China, right? But we cannot continue on the romantic path that, uh, President Clinton set out in 2000 <laughs> that we have uh, seen uh, run its course. And so to get, we, we have to find a balance. And I think the policymakers, it would be irresponsible for policymakers to say, we have a solution that will help, uh, would, would get us there. They, they need to be more transparent about the costs and benefits when they propose any policy, uh, how much it's going to pay, we are going to pay for it, and how much additional security we're going to get out of this. And I think that needs to be a standard going forward. And clearly, we are not even close to being in, at that state. Thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. I think this was a really great conversation. Thanks for having me, Kristen. Thanks for listening to our episode with Wei Feng Zhang. I wanted to note a couple different important details from the episode that I'd like to keep in mind for the rest of the season. So Zhang works on the Policy Change Index, which uses machine learning to analyze Chinese propaganda to predict changes in government policy. As he explained, a machine learning program requires training data that helps it learn how to interpret input, like in this case, millions of articles from the People's Daily. The Policy Change Index can be seen as a method of watching the watchers, of using open source information, which is anything that is readily available in the public domain, in order to 
better understand and observe the actions of the government. And this is a way of eroding the opacity of propaganda, turning it into something that reveals rather than something that conceals the interests of those in power. However, there are important limits to the technology. For example, as Wei Feng said, the People's Daily can ignore certain events instead of attempting to spin them in some particular way. So an example would be the Tiananmen Square massacre. And even though this technology uh, has a democratic power to it, technological development isn't a guaranteed path to expanding democracy and liberty. As Wei Feng said, the surveillance state can develop faster than the public's ability to use technologies in democratic ways. Machine learning and predictive analytics programs are not just a tool for observing autocratic rule, but they can also be used in democracies in various ways, um, including in ways that end up perpetuating discrimination and repression, uh, both by private actors and the government. Uh, this is partly because if there is a history of discrimination and inequality, that might be reflected in the data that trains or uh, that that trains a program or that the program is applied to. And the programs will learn to perpetuate and apply these prejudicial patterns. It can be somewhat difficult to prevent and correct for these tendencies. Because even if a program is told not to incorporate data on something like gender, let's say, the program is likely to pick up on other patterns that can become effective proxies. Transparency that allows third parties to audit machine learning programs can help. But as we discussed, there are a couple of different difficulties, both legal and technical. So private companies often have proprietary rights that protect their programs as trade secrets. Alternatively, nonprofits like Mercatus are able to make their programs open source, which was very important to Wei Feng in making the PCI transparent and available to anyone. However, when open source programs are especially large and complex, transparency is still a difficult standard to meet because only large institutions rather than individuals are likely to have the technological capacities necessary to actually download the model and, and be able to audit and apply it to data. Thanks for listening. Till next time.